Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Peter Saunders, who's one of the co-founders of Soul Agri Energy. So we talk a lot about solar and what the future might hold for it as a power source. The purpose of Seeds is to listen to each other's stories and to learn from what others have gone through. If you enjoy this episode, then why not check out some of the 265 others in the back catalog? And my ask for any of you listening who like these interviews is, would you mind telling one other person about them? You can find out heaps more at theseeds.nz. And a shout out to Jacob from the Ministry of Awesome, who connected me with Peter. There's a lot more information in the show notes, including some links to Peter's company, as well as the Pledge Me campaign that they have running right now. Now let's get straight into this conversation. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Peter Saunders, who's the co-founder of Solagri. Thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure, Stephen. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing about what you're up to. And um, I think, uh, you know, the future and energy and all these different topics are front of mind for us as we grapple with a lot of issues in the world. But before we um, talk about that endeavor and um, what you're doing today, I'd like to go back in time. So would you be able to tell us a little bit about your life and in terms of time frame can we go way back like even when you were four or five years old where were you living and what was life like for you sure um well i guess um i was born in the states uh grew up well came out to new zealand when i was two years old um both my parents are kiwis but dad was um uh working for the world bank uh based out of uh washington dc and so that's where i sort of hit the hit the ground and um yeah, came out here when I was two, uh, had a pretty normal early stage upbringing, um, grew up in Auckland, uh, went to school uh, in Auckland uh, at a boarding school, um, and uh, and then, yeah, at age five, I guess, um, just started at Royal Oak School and um, had, a, <laughs> had a, as I say, pretty normal sort of couple of early stage, which is yeah. great, actually. Um, I've still got a couple of friends from, from that era. Um, funnily enough, one of whom, whom's actually uh, one of the, well, he wasn't a co-founder, but he certainly came on very early on and is uh, involved in Selectory with me. So uh, it's great to, yeah, keep those relationships going. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So um, the, the, the States connection, like back over there, um, mm-hmm. do you have any conscious memory of that? Or what age were you when you came back to New Zealand? Came back when I was uh, two and a half. So not really. Mm-hmm. Um, I do recall a very vivid memory, or not vivid, but I do recall um, a memory um, when I first got back, uh, we, we lived in uh, a little complex just up above the Parnell Baths, and I, I vaguely remember that. Um, but also, when we first came back, my brother picked up um, meningitis uh, either just before we left the States or as we were coming back. And mm-hmm. so I, I remember going to hospital to see him in a little incubator a couple of times. So that was pretty traumatic for mum particularly, but for the whole family really. Um, and I guess that's why it stuck in my brain. But um yeah, that was uh, a pretty uh, rude shock for my brother, who was only very young at the time. Um, 
maybe six months old. So it sounds like, um, you know, your family was quite an international one, though, you know, having been over there and then coming back. Was that something that you remember as a child, that this was a a big part that your family had had moved around the world? Um, My father particularly was very international. He left New Zealand when he was 20, Uh, lived in Africa for six years, six or seven years, um, and got into all sorts of interesting jobs there. He was a crocodile hunter for about a year um, and then uh, he ended up doing a number of interesting odd jobs including building uh, the Maun airport in the middle of the Okavango swamp and uh, and then went to University of Cape Town for uh, and got his uh, undergraduate degree from, from there. Uh, then went and lived in London for a while and had a number of jobs there um, before deciding he wanted to carry on studying and went to, got into the University of Columbia and did his MBA there. And from there, he was basically recruited into the World Bank for a while, um, had, a, had a stint there before coming back to New Zealand. So he had a pretty in, uh, international sort of period between early 20s and mid-30s. Mum had travelled a bit into Europe, so she sort of had a relatively international um period in her life and then and then I guess uh, dad came back and knew of mum through uh, connections with her brother they played rugby together and a few things like that so um, so yeah that's that I guess they met when dad was back home for a wee while and uh, and that's how that relationship sort of blossomed and then um, when they got married mum went followed dad back to the states and yeah that's how that all yeah. happened. So, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't say as a family we were particularly particularly international, but certainly mum and dad had quite a sort of international view, view on life. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. It's just always interesting to trace through with people's life stories and, you know, what gets passed down from parents to children and the way of looking at the world, I guess. So, yeah. 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 yeah, and then in your in your school years, like were there subjects that you enjoyed more than others, or yeah, give us a picture of yourself, kind of moving through primary school and um, yeah, becoming a young adult. What type of things interested you? <laughs> Interesting question. Um, I guess when I was young, I always wanted to be a farmer. Pretty much all my uncles were farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, all by one of my uncles, my father and one of my uncles were the only two that weren't farmers. That when I was very young. Um, one or two got out of farming later in life, but, um, and and so that that was always something that I was really interested in, and I loved being outdoors. Um, I was, when I was at secondary school, I loved rowing um, and uh, getting out tramping, and and yeah, just being reasonably physical, um, but also uh, yeah, just being out in the outdoors, I guess, more than anything else. And I guess that kind of followed me right through. Um, the career choices I've made, um, mm-hmm. and even now, um, whilst a lot of what I do is behind a desk, I guess uh, the, the the time I really enjoy is getting out talking to farmers and being on farms, and and uh, certainly when I was in the wine industry, which was my previous career, um, yeah, it's always when I was out in the vineyard that I was at my happiest. Mm. What is it that being out like that? Yeah, why does it make you happy? <laughs> that's a really hard question to answer um i don't know um i guess 
I love I love the interaction just with with, with nature. I mean, I, I'm always fascinated by the weather. I love to try and predict in my mind. Oh well, you know, there's high high wispy cloud. There's a nor'easter coming, and all of those sorts of things, which are you know they sound really sort of a little bit sort of mundane or whatever for a lot of people. But I think um, you know it's that you never know what nature's going to give you. Um, you never know what the weather's going to hold, and you and you should always be very aware of how powerful it can be um both in a positive and a negative sense um and yeah it it changes people's moods uh there's no doubt that the west wind in canterbury um can have a profound effect on some people's mood and uh i i think um humanity's relationship with nature is is slowly getting eroded um in a lot of in a lot of cases and and that's a real shame because uh you know if we lose our connection with with the world around us, then we no longer respect it. Then we start having an adverse effect on it. Mm. I think that's partly what's happening at the moment. You know, this whole climate change issue, which um, is certainly partly man-made, um, is uh, is you know we need to take some ownership and responsibility for that. And yeah. if we're not prepared to respect nature, then then uh, we're going to reap the <laughs> the rewards or or the uh, negative effects that she decides to throw at us. Mm. I think it's really interesting, and it may lead into what we end up talking about in a little bit in terms of what you're doing today. Um, but I think sometimes in a Western conception, we commoditize everything, and that can include nature. You know, and and we end up viewing a parcel of land as being, well, I own the land, my name is on the title, and how can I extract value from it? You know, we use terms which are very, um, well, I guess they're very extractive <laughs> rather than regenerative or thinking in a more symbiotic way that that we ourselves are part of nature. You know, we kind of view it as a separate thing. Um, I lived for, in Japan for five years, and one of the things that struck me there was that they had a more holistic view of nature and, and the role that nature plays and their place within nature. So th- simple things like cherry blossoms would be blooming and people would go out and they would have picnics under the cherry blossoms and admire and appreciate the beauty of the cherry blossoms. Whereas here, sometimes I feel like you know, it's, it's kind of a passing glance rather than a sort of a true appreciation of the beauty that, that nature has. I don't know if you've got any thoughts about. No, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I, I often say to my boys, um, you know, you've got to stop and smell the roses. And, and nine times out of 10, when I walk past a rose and it's got a beautiful blossom on it, I will stop and smell it. Um, mm. And, and that's, uh, I think uh, you've, you've got to appreciate what's around you because you only have one life and uh, it's, it, it can be taken away from you pretty quickly. And, mm. you know, that's one sort of thing that humanity kind of forgets about is their own mortality and, and the fact that, you know, you're here today, gone tomorrow. <laughs> mm. And there are people, people preceded you and there'll be people that come after us and we're only a, a blink in the eye and, and it's your, um, it's the way we re- interact with each other and the way we interact with the surroundings that um, define who we are and whether we're going to be remembered. 
and mm. it's the memory of someone that is you know, their ongoing soul life. You know. mm. so, yeah. 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 So springing in words like legacy and stewardship and, you know, thinking longer term than just the short term. Um, what can we, what can we get? <laughs> it's yeah. How do we, how do we make it better for the next people? Yeah. Mm. I agree with that. So coming to the end of your high school years, did you say there was boarding school involved there as well? Yeah, yeah, actually quite a lot of boarding school. Uh, Mum and dad have both been to boarding school and felt that that was uh, obviously something that I, I needed as well. Um, I'm not sure whether that was a reflection on me or my personality or whether they just felt that uh, you learn a lot from that. I think it was probably the latter. Um, yeah. you, do, you do learn quite a lot about uh, learning learning to interact and live with other people and all that sort of thing from boarding school. So, um, and yeah. And a lot so of what age were you when you first went to boarding school? Is that- I think nine. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. Maybe nine. I did about seven years of boarding school. So. Yeah. Yeah. And was it, uh, I, I, I haven't talked to that many people who went to boarding school for that long. <laughs> What was it yeah. like? <laughs> was it a um, Harry Potter type of experience where it's, you know, it's all collegial and you've got your friends and all of that? Or were there downsides as well? Well, I think, you know, in Harry Potter, there's there's tension between Harry and his mates and a few of the other kids in the school. I think that would probably be a fair reflection. Um, yeah. I, uh, I've got some very good fond f- uh, memories and some good friends from from um, from school, particularly senior school, uh, but I've also, you know, like everyone, you sort of you have your tough times, and that that's what makes you stronger when you get older. And mm. I guess, um, you know, I'm, I could, I'm concerned about you know the way society is trying to cocoon people and protect them from from hard times because hardships what makes us stronger and there's no doubt about that and mm. yeah you can only build up resilience by being through hard times mm. yeah that's my philosophy anyway <laughs> yeah yeah um, oh that's good so you coming to the end of high school did you know what you wanted to do next well yeah i, I guess by that stage i had decided i wanted to be a farmer of some sort um I guess I wanted to be a sheep and beef farmer like all of my uncles, um, mainly sheep farmers mostly. Um, And so I went off to Lincoln University um, and, yeah, had (laughs) probably had a bit too much fun and probably didn't do enough work actually because I didn't last there very long before uh, it was recognised certainly by the university and not too too much later by me that I probably shouldn't be there. So... um, I took a year or two out and went and worked. Uh, and a friend of friend of the family um, suggested that maybe I should have a look at the wine industry. It was relatively fledgling in Marlborough at the time. Right. Um, it had been going. Well, this was all been this would have been about ninety two. So it had been it had been developing f- since the mid eighties. Um, had been through a pretty pretty tough time in the later eighties, but was starting to get quite a strong name for itself, particularly in the UK. So he said, well, why don't you go down to Marlborough and um, well, why don't you come down to Marlborough and um, maybe you can help us prune the vineyard. And so I got a job pruning the vines for three or four months. Mm-hmm. And then during that time, 
was lucky enough to meet uh, Ivan Sutherland, who uh, who had actually been a rowing selector a few years prior. Um, I doubt he remembered me, in fact, I'm sure he didn't at the time, um, but at a junior trials that I'd been at. And so, uh, yeah, we we started chatting and, and I said I was interested in sort of having a bit more of a look at the wine industry beyond just pruning. So he offered me a job. And so I had a two-year stint working at Cloudy Bay Vineyards, just in, in, in the vineyards, mm-hmm. sort of junior junior managerial role, but it wasn't really management. It was just learning the ropes, really. And so, um, yeah, I was, I'm forever indebted to Ivan for sort of giving me that break and, and working with him was great. And uh, over time, I sort of ended up getting back into rowing for a couple more years too, which, which I really enjoyed. Mm. So it was, what was it? What was it that caused him to give you that break? Do you think? Oh, I think he was actually looking <laughs> looking for someone, and probably at that stage, you know, most people, well, most kids, I guess, were were finishing school in Melbourne, and, and a lot of them were just getting out of out of it. It was tough times in the agricultural sector. Um, Marlborough at the time was still very much um, reeling from that, and and really only slowly growing into its into its sort of new identity as a wine region. Um, and it was really, it's, I've been, I've worked in Marlborough two or three times over the last 20 or 30 years and um, for different different jobs. And it was really interesting, um, or it has been really interesting sort of plotting the progress um, from those early stages where, you know, Wine was really entrepreneurial. Well, it was it was actually pretty entrepreneurial. Most of the guys there were were really at the vanguard of getting the industry going. Um, they all knew each other. They had to know each other, and they had to get on because, frankly, they had to borrow gear off each other the whole time. Um, you know, and they were they were pretty collegial. Um, whereas now it's grown into you know a completely different monster. It's uh, it's a real corporate culture. Um, that's not to say that they don't generally get on and generally know each other, but there's definitely a bit more clickiness, I guess would be the best way to put it. Um, and, you know, back in the early days, everyone knew everyone. You, you knew who the winemaker was from just about every winery because there weren't that many wineries. And frankly, you probably met most of them at a party or, or whatever. So um, most of the wineries had parties where they'd invite, you know, a lot of the other um, people from the other wineries. And, and so it was quite a collegial group. Um, whereas now, you know, trying to know everyone in the wine industry in Marlborough would be just about an impossibility. Uh, there's so mm. many people. Um, but, you know, it's a real success story and, and um, it's it's a credit to those early guys that built the platform onto which um, the industry has grown. Um, mm. And not just in Marlborough, but, you know, the New Zealand industry realistically hinges around Marlborough's opening the block. So um, maybe a target yeah. of Pen and Wire as well. Certainly Marlborough's opening it. Mm. It's an interesting point because these days you just sort of assume that that's just always been there, right? Like it's just, mm. it's there and you have to roll back a couple decades and realize, no, this was brand new at the time. Somebody had to have the guts to say, I'm going to plant grapes here <laughs> and uh, yeah. no one's done this before, but I have a vision of what it might be. Um Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. And it really took a couple of international people to, to recognize, I mean, 
Montana had got in early, so you had um, I think Frank Jokic and a few others sort of came in early, and and they they planted the early stuff, which got a couple of people to recognise what was going on and and the possibility of Sauvignon. But it was David Honan, um, Ernie Hunter, uh, and Jane Hunter. Um, in fact, probably Jane as much as any, because she she really ran the vineyards in those days. Um, and and a couple of others and and yeah, I mean David Honan was from West Australia, um, Ernie came out from Ireland uh, and Jane was Australian, and and Kevin Judd and and there were a few others as well. But those those early pioneers of Sauvignon Blanc, more of them were from out overseas, particularly Australia, than than were from New Zealand. Um, I mean you had Alan Scott uh, and and a few others as well who who and and Ivan Sutherland who who. Um, who recognised the opportunity, but uh, it was it was those early winemakers who really um, who came across from Australia, and and the recognition they managed to get in eighty five, eighty six, well, actually I think eighty three was the first one that Montana got. But those those sort of mid eighties, they they made some stunningly good Sauvignon Blancs that were completely different to anything that had been tasted in, in the wine shows up in the UK, and that's that's what put them. Put Marlborough Sauvignon on the map in the first place, and then Clyde Bay got two two awards in a row, which um, was almost unheard of as well. And so then, then suddenly you know, the doors opened, and, and yep. you know, the opportunity came. It rolled from there. I'm just thinking now, you know, in the tech industry or other things where people are innovating, trying new things. In a way, it's like mm-hmm. a echo of some of those early industries, isn't it? You know, it's. Um, it doesn't exist now, but I've got a vision for what this business might be. And, you know, it's that entrepreneurial spirit of let's give it a go. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I, I think also it was the hardship of what was going on uh, in the farming sector in those early nineties, particularly that gave a number of the farmers on the flats around, around Marlborough, the, um, the, uh, Impetus to try something new. I mean, <laughs> sheep were basically worthless at the time, or certainly not worth much. So I just had to plug in, um, and so you know they, they had nothing to lose but to try try something a bit different. Yeah, yeah, no, it's quite not... interesting. I mean, round round Christchurch, and there there are a few of those early entrepreneurial companies which have have now um, set the platform for. For a really interesting electronics sector, I and mean, you've got Tate Electronics, you've got PDL, and the Stewart family with Scope as well, um, and they've really they really have set the platform for some incredible um, new businesses which have spun out, like Enatel, um, Dennis Chapman, sort of originally a Tate alumni, and and a few others, and 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 you know there's there's quite a cool microcosm of of electronics um, that that is based out of Christchurch now. Mm. Which wouldn't have be wouldn't be here if those early pioneers had said, you know, we're going to set up shop and we're going to try something, and it yeah. built from there. Yeah, it's the flow on, isn't it? So talk um, us through, um, you know, you you got involved there in the wine industry, and it sounds like that yeah. kept you busy for a while. I'd really love to t- kind of turn the conversation now to talk a bit about what you're doing today. Um, sure. Can you tell us a little bit about the origin story of that, and then just describe what exactly it is? Yeah, okay. Um, so, 
Yeah, I decided to get out of the wine industry. I'd been in that for 25 years um, and had been talking to my cousin who was working at one of the dairy co-ops um, and had recognised there was a strong correlation between grass growth, believe it or not, and the solar radiance and that there might be an opportunity to look at solar as a way of powering dairy sheds. Um, the co-op he was working for at the time decided that, you know, it wasn't really their core focus and that um, they, they didn't really want to follow up on, on that little project. Mm-hmm. And I stumbled in, in my job as you know selling wine. Um, I'd been I'd met a couple of guys who were in the renewable energy sector, engineers, and um, and a friend of theirs. Or I met them through a friend, um, and yeah, basically I said to Hamish, my cousin, um, why don't we have a look at this ourselves? We, I've got a couple of guys who we can run it by, and if they think it's worth having a look, a more serious look, then um, then let's do it. And uh, he had nothing to lose, so that's, that's kind of the determination. So it sort of it came out of a glass of wine over his kitchen table um, four years ago, almost exactly right. four years ago, actually. And yeah. um, and so that's what we did. We picked it up and and uh, started modelling it with with um, a good friend of mine now, Marco, who I'd, I'd only met briefly at that stage. And he and I did a lot of the work, early work with Hamish on, on gathering the early data um, and then just building up building up the modelling around solar initially and then, okay, well, what will happen if we put batteries in? And so we, um, yeah, we just... It's been a it's been a, a really interesting ride. We thought we'd crash the model two or three times, but... You know, managed to um, work out where we'd where we'd gone wrong or what was wrong with it, and and yeah, we built up a pretty robust model over that period. Yeah, and you know, along the way, we've uh, we've had some really significant help from Mainpower. Um, they came on board and and helped us build our pilot, um, which was incredibly good of them. Um, and uh, and they believed in us, and and I think probably still do actually. Uh, although we've sort of had a, a well, parting of the ways, and that was mainly over strategic decisions. But, but um, yeah, it's been it's been a really cool ride. Mm. So, tell us a little bit, and what what we can do is in the show notes, we can put links to your website and things. Sure. Um, yeah. Just talk to us through in terms of what you're actually doing on a practical sure. level with farmers, and yeah. how is it that you're you're helping them to see a future for energy that's more sustainable? Yeah. Um, so, well, our, our offering to farmers basically is a solar as a service. So um, we we build or construct um, a solar array on their farm uh, to power their dairy shed initially, although we may look at irrigation in the not too distant future as well. But initially it's just the dairy shed. Um, we pay for it. We own it. Um, and and we just sell them electricity as if they were buying it off Meridian or Contact or whomever else. And so it means that they don't have that upfront capital cost, which you know, most farmers, most farms are, are pretty capital intensive and, you know, these arrays are, are pretty significant in cost. So it just keeps the, the hooks of the bank out of them a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but also. Um, 
they get far better on farm resilience, uh, especially once we put the batteries in. So initially we're just doing solar, but within about a year we'll we'll be following through with batteries as well. We've just got a little bit more work to do on the on the R and D side, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll, I'm I'm very confident we'll have that so, sorted out in the next twelve months. And so uh, put the solar array on, have the battery, and once the battery's in place, we can. Um, and this is really pertinent to what's happened in the last two or three weeks is. Um, if, the, if the grid goes down, um, they'll be able to continue milking, get, get right through the milk, and, and then as the grid comes back up, it'll just seamlessly fall back into, into grid power or whatever. Um, yeah. And the beauty of it is because we're behind the meter, um, which means that uh, none of, well, the solar and energy doesn't go onto the, onto the network, and therefore it doesn't occur network fees. Um, most uh, we're able to give a bit of a, a, a lower power price than what they're paying in their current mm. their current situation. Yeah. So have we gotten way. to a point, do you think, in terms of solar power and, um, you know, is the technology finally catching up? Because I know for, for years I've heard people talking about solar as the future and, you know, we'll be able to have panels on our roofs and things. But then in the past when I've talked with people about this, it's been like, well, actually the panels are so expensive that it's going to take us a decade to pay them off and, you know, mm. have any balancing up, but I haven't talked with anybody who's up to it up on this recently. So is the yeah. technology improving quite quickly? You know, that exponential graph type of thing where actually it's getting cheaper to install these panels and therefore it's making more financial sense that, we should roll this out more? It's a really interesting one. It depends, like anything, it depends. So if if you are a um, residential user, unless you've got batteries or you're in a position where you can use that energy during the day, so, you know, you live at home, you work at home, you can keep your, keep your dishwasher and your washing machine on during the day, whatever it happens to be, then, then it stacks up. Um, for commercial use, you know, if you've got a factory and you're running most of that factory during the day, then solar almost definitely stacks up now. Um, but if you're a residential, you know, you've got a family, everyone's out of the house during the day, you're generating the solar, and really most of the solar's only been used to go back onto the grid, um, then it, it doesn't quite stack up quite so easily. So... And that, that's where the batteries kick in. Now, batteries are almost in range, I would say. Um, we're not too far away from batteries really making a difference. Price, well, they've come down in price significantly in the last two or three years, but um, we're, we're just getting to the point now where you know, if, if you're able to use, use your battery properly, then you can make it stack up. Commercial you know, thing to hear because yeah. I um I worked in Japan for a couple of years at a mm. trading house called Mitsui, and I remember okay. yep. this was a this was a whole area they were looking at actually buying a plant which made the panels you know in I think it was in Thailand, um, mm -hmm. but that was like ten years ago. So <laughs> I was just curious if things yeah. are changing, and because um, it does seem to you know like it's it's a source of energy that's hitting us all all the time in the yeah. daylight um, it, it, it would make sense to harness it 
to the extent we can, right? Absolutely. And I think um, to go back to your the first part of the question, I think um, the um, R&D that's gone into solar in the last few years has made solar panels far more efficient. Um, the, amount of, the amount of energy you can get off one, one panel now, has that has been going up exponentially. Unfortunately, you generally buy solar panels by their watt potential, so it's not actually making the panels too much um, uh, less expensive, but it is making the number of panels you require, um, well, all, everything around it. So the racking becomes cheaper because you don't need as much racking, and there's a few other things like that. So the economics sort of work out slightly work out for you slightly differently but um i think we're we're now at a point where there are some significant players in the solar industry who are all um bringing new technology into play which is yeah it's gonna we're probably going to see another drop in big drop in price over not too distant future and the same is happening with batteries um the, one of the constraints on batteries is going to be the the chemistry or not so much the chemistry but the chemicals available so what the minerals available um because and also the divide between whether those uh, minerals are going to go into the um into the ev space or come into the um into the storage space uh and then there's the whole chemistry side of things so whether it's lithium iron or whether it's solid state or whether it's going to involve graphene, you know, there's there's so much going on in the battery space at the moment. Um, but it's all it's doing is dragging that price down and down and down. And as new chemistries come on board, that'll keep applying more pressure, which is great. Yeah, it's interesting to watch the whole technology space and see. And um, it, you know, I guess one interesting bit is the the batteries themselves and you know how sustainable is that what happens to them when their end of life comes can they be disposed of in a sustainable way i think that's something that some people have said actually there's issues there as well um, i don't know much about that do you know have any thoughts on that <laughs> yeah well i know there's a, a fairly large group in new zealand that are looking into that um, and there are groups all around the world who are both concerned about, but also working hard on a solution for for recycling um, lithium ion. But I'd also say that you know a lot of these thing, um, batteries get to um, ten years seems to be <laughs> the period that everyone seems to work in. Um, so everyone sort of says, oh, after ten years they they're no longer usable. That's generally not the case. Usually at about ten years they're about eighty percent efficient, um, and and a lot of use cases particularly um the transport sector once you get down to 80 percent um and I'll, I'll, I'll circle back on that in a sec but once you get down to about 80 percent the um that you need to upgrade or replace the battery um with with particularly buses and trucks 10 years seems to be far less it's, it's actually about three years um and that's because you know you can't have a bus that's working on 80 percent efficiency if you're running a bus company and, and you don't want to be constantly having to recharge so, um, at three o'clock in the afternoon when you need the bus to keep going to six, it's just no good. So um, so that tra transport sector is interesting. But once, you, once you've got a, quite a large battery from out of a bus or a truck, um, 
that's still 80% usable, it's got perfectly, um, uh, a perfectly good second life um, as an energy storage battery um, for something like what we're doing, where you can chain it up with a whole lot of others, stick it in a container, and um, and then reuse it or or you give it a second lease on life, um, just as an energy storage battery. Uh, so yeah, that that's where the initial stage of recycling is probably going to end up going, um, and then that'll give us quite a bit more time up our sleeves in order to find the ultimate end solution, which is recycling the lithium ion, um, so that it can be reused in, in either batteries or whatever else they they choose to use it for. So yeah, I'm I'm very confident um, that the recycling issues will be dealt with. Um, I mean, I've, if you look at the little double A, triple A batteries that have been used in our transistor radios, right through to whatever we're using for now, um, our mouse and whatever else on, on our computer, then um, you know we haven't been doing a great job with those. And I think that's 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 probably something that. Um, that we do need to sort out quickly is that consumer electronics side of thing, and not just batteries, but pretty much everything. That's good. It's a fascinating area to talk about because the the thing, like we're recording this at, at a moment in time, the end mm. of August 2021, and I just wonder if someone listening to this, you know, 30 years, 50 years from now, will look back and think about how much has changed because of advances in technology. And I mean, ideally yeah. we would be harnessing the sun and solar power and having it power so many other things that we probably can't even imagine at the moment. Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, like a vision for the future, <laughs> if we were in a time machine and we went forward 50 years, what do you think it might look like in terms of how we've been able to take the technology forward? I think, um, Energy is a really interesting one because uh, I think a lot of the things that we consider to be waste at the moment and stick in a hole and kind of bury it and forget about it will become sources of energy for the future. And I, at the, right now, I can't see why we're not um, using certain sources like soft plastics, which we're encouraged to stick in our rubbish bin and throw away. Not even into the recycling. Um, you know, they can actually be get, put through a gasification system, turned into some gas, and, and generate electricity. Sure, there's a cost to that, um, but there's also a cost to sticking in the ground because over time it releases methane and a few other things, and actually has an atmospheric uh, disadvantageous atmospheric consequence. So um, I think uh, we will see a lot of things that we currently stick into our waste stream become sources of energy, um, which is which which will be cool. And I think, you know, we, we we need to become we need to become a lot smarter about that sort of stuff. Um, and as we work, you know, hydrogen's gonna be everyone said for hundred years hydrogen will become the next fuel source. Well it hasn't quite got there yet, but we're a hell of a lot closer than we were 20 or 30 years ago. And I think hydrogen, um, the amount of work going into trying to crack the hydrogen nut um, is, you know, it's gotta pay dividends over the next few years. And every time humans develop a um, 
an element of competition around something, we nearly always find a solution. Um, so I'm really, I'm really hopeful for that we will, we will crack that nut pretty soon. Uh, yeah. And I've got some good, friend, good friends who are working on just that. So yeah. Yeah, no, it's just fun to imagine what the future might hold. I know when I talk to my mother, she tells me, you know, back in the 50s, 60s sort of era, they thought mm -hmm. that by now we would all be flying in our own personalized helicopters, you know, like yeah. it was these dreams of what what may come. But I, I spoke with someone who's an expert in um, hospitals and health technology mm -hmm. and just thinking yeah. through the progress that we're about to enter into in terms of personal health care, personalized results, you know, helping people on their health journey. But then even thinking 50 years, 100 years from now, when you go to hospital, it's going to be so completely different to today. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this is similar, you know, where, how will we have harnessed energy in, in new ways and um, mm -hmm. hopefully a more sustainable way, right? Yeah, well, health's crazy. I mean, it, We've got a health system which you know, we just keep on throwing money at, and from what I can see, some of that money is making a difference, and some of it's clearly not. But there's also the expectation from the population that any new health breakthrough be immediately becomes available to everyone within the system, and, and that's clearly um, it's clearly not the case. But it, it, it would be nice if it could become the case. Um, and and you know, you think of where we've come since you and I were growing up, where you know, heart surgery basically meant that you had to lay on a table, someone would cut you open, they'd do whatever they were going to do, and then they'd stitch you back up. They'd, you'd be in the hospital for at least two weeks, probably longer. There was no guarantee you'd survive it, <laughs> and a whole lot of other things. Whereas nowadays, they, they stick a stick a little tube in, in, in your arm and can actually perform the surgery without hardly making any any intrusion to you at all. I mean, it's absolutely insane what they're able to do now. Mm -hmm. And yeah, as you say, imagine where that's going to take us in 50 years time. I think there's no doubt that um, medicine um, will have the ability to become far more uh, um, the ambulance at the top of the cliff rather than the bottom. So the diagnostics available to doctors in the next 20, 30 years will be such that um, they can they can work out what's happening and what may become a problem well before we even know about it. If that makes any sense. Yeah, um, no, that's right. Which is which is quite exciting, um, and it could have you know as long as the money is put in the right places, um, and you know humans tend to be far more reactive than proactive in the way we do things. But um, you know if we start to take a more proactive approach to to medicine and a number of other things in society, then hopefully um, we can hit a few big problems off of the past in the future. Yeah, definitely. Now, um, Jacob at Ministry of Awesome is the one who connected us because he suggested yeah. it'd be great to chat with you. Obviously, his focus is really on helping entrepreneurs, startups, you know, people mm -hmm. on this journey of developing their business. I'd be curious yeah. to know from you, you know, having been doing this for four years, what, are there any tips or tricks or things that you wish that you'd known or advice for people on their entrepreneurial journeys? Any, any top things that immediately spring to mind? Number one is <laughs> you've, 
you've got to be prepared to go into it for the long haul and it's going to be some pretty pretty hard times um, so depending on how well you're funded um, we've, we've been lucky we've managed to um, to bring in some funding we had a guy David Fox who's a local Christchurch man and he really saw saw what we were doing as being really beneficial and and uh, he put a put enough money in to get us going initially and then main power saw some some value in what we were doing and as I said earlier they they also came in and, and uh, helped us build our pilot and and without those two I, would, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now and and but you know I've also had to bootstrap it and, and work alongside what I've been doing here and and uh, you know we've we've walked up the garden path with a number of people um, in the hope that we would get um, some reasonably significant investment and, and had all the indications that it would happen. But, you know, we've found that, um, particularly with corporates, that sometimes uh, things that are outside there or our control change, change things on the dime. And, and so you know, you've got to be prepared to take that on the chin and believe that what you're doing is worthwhile. As, my, as Hamish has said a couple of times, you've also got to, recognize that sometimes it's not going to happen and be prepared to walk but uh, I haven't got to that point yet um, I think my wife would say that she probably has a few times <laughs> probably more than a few times um, but but uh, yeah I guess for some reason I yeah I'm not prepared to give up or I haven't been prepared to give up to this point anyway yeah. um, and and I truly believe in what we're doing so so that's that's always helpful. <laughs> But yeah, you've got to believe in what you're doing, um, and and also just keep talking to people, um, whether that's your potential market. Um, in fact, that's the most important group of people to talk to um, for any business, um, unless there's a market. There's not much point in carrying on, um, and but yeah, talk to all your potential suppliers, potential investors. Don't talk to one investor at a time. Try and talk to two or three. I think that's a big one um, because you've got to have a plan B, C, D, E, and F, and preferably mm -hmm. right down to Z. <laughs> um, uh, when it's, particularly when it comes to funding, um, and yeah, it's uh, it's it's not easy. So, but but it's worthwhile. I think that yeah. that's the most important thing. Um, even if it's a complete failure, you'll learn a lot of things about yourself. Um, Sometimes you'll find out who your friends are or aren't. Um, although we, oh yeah, I have to say we we haven't been in that situation. I think um, we've still got a good relationship with everyone we've dealt with here, but in this business. Yeah. But yeah, it's um, it's good. It's no, those are good I insights. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't, wouldn't give up on the last four years at all. I mean, yeah, it's been great. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well. You know, when I think of entrepreneurs that I've been helping from a legal perspective. Many of them have had to try things and pivot. And, you know, it's kind of an overused word, but you don't necessarily know your exact sweet spot right when you begin. It's those conversations. It's working out, wait, is there a market for this? And I've seen several entrepreneurs that I've been um, assisting where they start thinking that the market is a retail market and that this is the best thing for the consumer. And then after a couple months or sometimes years, <laughs> they kind of realize, well, actually, this is an industry solution and mm -hmm. I need to be talking with the industry players. And frankly, the industry players have more money than the retail consumers. And I've kind of 
need to switch my focus. It's just, I guess it's, you have to be flexible, don't you? Just being ready for whatever the entrepreneurial journey may bring. I, I absolutely agree with that. And, mm-hmm. and as you've identified, you know, quite often the market you think you have, it's either too small or um, there's a better, better fit already in the market, even though your idea is a good one, there's already someone who's, who's nailed it in a better way or whatever. But, but you might find that that good idea is, is actually a fantastic solution for a completely different group of people. And so you, you've got to be open-minded. Um, mm. And yeah, as you say, the I think the word pivot, yeah, it might be overused, but I think you, you know you do have to be prepared to to walk off in a different direction, um, just to see what's you know around the corner or over the hill or whatever it happens to be. Um, mm. And yeah, but again, as Hamish has said to me a number of times, at some point you may have to be prepared to walk away as well, turn around and go back and regroup and try something else yeah well that's always the a part of the the journey is is knowing when to walk because <laughs> well, right. some entrepreneurs just continue to bang their head against the wall scraping by with just barely enough money to keep going and then mm. keep going and then keep going but never actually finding that point that it's going to scale enough to actually be sustainable. And it's this really hard line of at, at what point do you go, right, that we we actually did, we couldn't have done anything more, you know? <laughs> we did yeah. everything we could. So, yeah, exactly. well, that's good. That's why I find, yeah, this, this capital raise we're in the middle of at the moment is, uh, it's been a bit daunting the last couple of weeks because, you know, we've suddenly been locked down. And I'd have to say that the, the retail side of the capital raise is, is, is kind of, gone off the boil would be the most honest way to put it but mm-hmm. but i think um it's made us think about okay well what do we need to do to get get it back and run, up and running and and yeah it's, who do we need to talk to how are we going to do this and so you have to suddenly rejig your strategy rejig how you you're going to reach out to people and and um and hopefully we can breathe life back into it i'm pretty sure we will be able to but it has been a bit daunting the last week sort of watching things slow right down when we had yeah. actually started getting ahead of steam. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, it's kind of an odd time. As we're recording this, we're in this lockdown. So people in the future yeah. will listen back and it, it will have passed, I'm sure, and we're on to different things. But you're right, it is a daunting time um, at yeah. the moment. You know, there's a bit of uncertainty. Well, what we'll do is put links to things in the show notes so people who are listening okay, can cool. click through. So if you just let me know, I mean, obviously your website, but anything else mm. that you'd like included, and we can add those in. Um, but okay. I do want to say yeah. thank you for coming on the show and sharing a bit about your journey and and hearing about um, what you're doing today and you know the background to it. It's really sure. interesting how you've been able to weave in that love of the outdoors and you know farming, and now with this initiative, actually helping farmers to to harness natural energy that's there and um you know think about it in a sustainable way in terms of their farming practices so yeah Yeah. thanks for coming on the show peter i I appreciate your time oh thank you very much Stephen. it's been uh yeah fun fun conversation Enjoyed it. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Peter. For me, there were many things that stood out, and I liked hearing about his journey and his reflections on what solar energy might hold for the future. If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog. And there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. 
Until next time.